sometimes the only way you find out it was the wrong goal by doing it. And I think this is the hard part. I mean, I suffered from this and you know, we touched on this in the last episode, you know, your esteem as you're a kid and all the programming and all this stuff. But for me, I know there are a couple of goals I had and sometimes you make progress and you go, oh, this really wasn't that important. And then you kind of beat yourself up like, oh, I should have known. But there is no better way to know something than to do it. You cannot ride a horse by reading a book about riding horses. You cannot know that a goal is the wrong fit after obviously some deliberation without going after it. And it's that idea that we talked about earlier, effectual thinking, effectual reasoning of sometimes you need to do a sanity check and say, hang on, does this matter right now? This is Super Fast Business with James Schramko. James Schramko. Helping you build your business super fast. James Schramko here. Welcome back to superfastbusiness.com. This is episode 762. And if you haven't listened to episode 761, you'll want to go back and listen to that. And that's because we've been going through a business cheat sheet with Rob Hanley. G'day, Rob. Hey, mate. Welcome back. Good to be here again. Yeah. Thanks, man. Uh, we started down the path last time of having a look at your secret special document that you posted on public social media. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it caught my attention. Yeah. And I said, we should podcast about that. I think it'll be really interesting. It's been a couple of days since we got the first part done. We went through it way slower than we expected, but we were sharing little anecdotes and stories on the way through. And I think this is going to be fun because it's kind of new and exciting, certainly not to you because you've been collating this little basically book in a paragraph for quite some time, I imagine. But for us, it's really fun just going through your stuff. It's like going around to your friend's place and having a look at through the garage, like check out their new car or, Mm -hmm. you know, see what their Lego collection looks like if you're into nerdy stuff or whatever. But in this case, we got up to the point where we're talking about what does success look like in the future. And we're going to continue on now with part two. So again, if you haven't listened to 761, Go back and listen to that. If you've listened to that and you're onto this, we won't hold you up too much. We're going to now be talking about using KPIs, but sparingly. Yeah. So this one's an interesting one. I remember the first experience I had with KPIs was when I was working, the last job I ever had, which is a long time ago now, it was in media. I worked in advertising and media. And all of a sudden, we had all these KPIs, and they were just kind of thrown at me like, hey, you've got to achieve these things. And the first thing was there was a bunch of them. Second thing is they really lacked context. And I think those are really important to keep in mind is that if you create a KPI, so for those who don't know, key performance indicator, which is just a fancy way of saying measuring a result. And that result can be an input and the result can be an output. And that depends on what you're trying to achieve, for example. And what you have is people have this desire to go, okay, KPIs are the way to success. So James, you're going to have 20 KPIs. You're going to manage all of them. Rob, you're going to have 20 KPIs. You're going to manage all. And it becomes this game of trade-offs and gamification. You want to keep it simple. Just let someone know the three to five things, five at an absolute max. Here's what you need to achieve to be successful. Here's how you measure your success. And at any day of the week, I can pull open your dashboard or your results and say, oh, wow, James, you are killing it. Like your volume of leads is hitting a consistent growth. Your conversion rate is nice and stable on a trailing five-day average. And look at this, you've made progress on the new product. Love it, fantastic. I don't need to talk to you. But if I see there's a dip, I can be like, okay, I need to give more than a bit of positive feedback. We can start troubleshooting what's happening to the leads. Where's the issue in the inputs? I think that's the idea of KPIs is it gives you a number that you can directly affect. It gives you something to know you're being successful on your own. And it gives a a point of feedback for your direct report or who you have a report directly to. I think that's really useful. Love it. And you said sparingly. You don't want too many. No, no. Like, don't strangle things. In computing, there's this uh, concept called overfitting. I think maybe it's machinery, actually, but it's overfitting. We try and get it perfect, and it's like you're squeezing it as much as you can. Just focus on, it's again, leverage like we talked about in the last episode. Three to five gives you a lot of leverage. 
10, you've gone too far and you've actually destroyed the leverage you're creating. Now you've made it too rigid and too structured. And have you ever gone sort of maybe a layer deeper or sideways of it? Have you had a look at concepts like KRA and OKR? Yeah. Or, um, you know, lead metrics and lad metrics within those KPIs? Yeah, so like I played with OKRs for a little while with some of my clients and my own businesses. And while I like the structure of thinking, I've often found that they may be a little too restrictive. And the other thing I look at is lag and lead is really good. Uh, so those who don't know, James, you obviously would know this, but a lagging indicator is here's what happened after I did some stuff and I'm focusing on am I doing the right actions to produce a result? And a leading indicator is one where if I do this, then I'll get the result I want. And it's really just about knowing what's appropriate to have your staff optimized for. Uh, and something else that's worth mentioning is your KPIs today probably won't be your KPIs a year from today because the business will grow and evolve and change. And unless you're really in the a steady, stable business, and that's it. It's just kind of static and it's about keeping it consistent. Well, then the KPI should be changing because the business should be changing. Exactly. So I'll have a couple of thoughts on this. Yeah, go for it. And KRA's key result area. You know, back in my day, KPIs and KRAs were the things that we were talking about. Then along came software companies and OKRs came along, and that's yeah. objectives and key results. So they're all very similar, but I'd, I'd say an OKR is probably a little more ambitious. It's kind of what you'd love to get if you stretch a bit, whereas a KPI is sort of more realistic. Yep. Yeah. So I'm really interested in the lead and lag metrics in our business on a daily basis. None of the numbers we track is a financial number. I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast and that surprises people, but we don't need to track a financial number to know how successful our business is being. What we do is we compare yesterday versus the day before that and the day before that, and then a month ago and then six months ago. Yeah. It's just on a little sheet and someone in my team collates this and then screenshots it and posts it to our whole team every day. So a couple of points here. Transparency across the whole business. Most people in our team can impact those numbers. They're not dollar signs, but they are a split of lead and lag metrics. So lag metric example would be how many members do we have in our memberships? We have four separate memberships. A lead metric might be how many emails have we sent last 30 days? Because we know that number is going to contribute to how many people join our membership in the future. So we keep an eye on that. And if it's dipping is going up or down, then uh, we get a good sort of lead into what the future of our business looks like. Other lag metrics that might be interesting would be podcast downloads, if that's your primary conversion driver. We also have uh, unique visits to our website last 30 days yeah. because that's a function of SEO. It's a function of all promotions of any type leading people back to our website from social media, from emails, from SEO, from paid traffic coming to the website. Again, as a pretty, you know, if you run your conversion rates through, you end up with X number of customers, which is reported. And then that turns into revenue. Yeah. And I do look at my revenue and costs definitely every month. Like we talked about that earlier in the previous episode. Yeah. But I also like to have a look at by line item compared to the same time last month. Mm -hmm. And when I go meet with my accountant, he always says, you know your numbers better than any of my customers. Yeah. Bar none. Like I've got my finger on the pulse. I will know if my business is dipping before anyone else because I can see it daily yeah. with this very simple reporting system. But when it comes to the team, I think one of the most important things with a KPI or a KRA or an OKR is if you allocate one to a person, they have to be able to impact it. Yeah. Oh, critical. I've seen people, you know, be bound to performance KPIs or get paid according to a, an achievement, but they actually have no control over making that number different. And, and that's one way to really piss off your team. Yeah. Well, because it goes back to what we were saying before about success, right? 
There's another interesting thing, and it's about this idea of uh, OKRs. From memory, it's like you should be hitting 80% of your OKR. That's the expectation, and 20% is a stretch. That's what I'm saying, because they're ambitious. Yeah. And that's like, you know, if you have a bull run, this is where we want to get to. My only concern with that is it's a culture, a potential for a culture of failure. Right? Like, hey, you know what? You never really complete your OKRs, so... I don't mean like to me that seems a little demoralizing to set quarterly goals or KPIs, OKR, sorry, and never hit. Yeah. Like, where's the win? Oh, cool. You subachieve. That's like the horizon effect. You know, the entrepreneur, yeah. they're always chasing more and more and more and they, you never get there because it's, yeah. it's always just out of reach. Dan Sullivan talks about that. Yeah. And uh, it's something that comes up a lot when I'm talking to people and they set their goals. I'm like, you know, we do a five whys into the goals and we get to the point. We realize that they just didn't get enough hugs when they were a kid or something. It's like, <laughs> you know, like it can yeah. end up being, um, you know, this goal might be the wrong goal. So if you're going to set KPIs, use them sparingly, make sure you c- the people who have them can impact them, make them achievable, and, of course, make sure they're the right ones. Yeah. I've heard other people, uh, Noah Kagan at one point talked about how his big goal was to build a massive email list. And then when he built the email list, he realized that actually wasn't the right goal for him. And so yeah. it's easy to do that, to have the wrong goal. There's a, a really good point on that is... Um Sometimes the only way you find out it was the wrong goal by doing it. Yeah. And I think this is the hard part. And people, I mean, I suffered from this and you know, we touched on this in the last episode, you know, your esteem as you're a kid and all the programming, all this stuff. But for me, I know there were a couple of goals I had and sometimes you, you make progress on them and you go, oh, this really wasn't that important. And then you kind of beat yourself up like, oh, I should have known. But there is no better way to know something than to do it. You cannot ride a horse by reading a book about riding horses. You cannot know that a goal is the wrong fit after, obviously, some deliberation without going after it. And it's that idea that we talked about earlier, effectual thinking, effectual reasoning of sometimes you need to do a sanity check and say, hang on, does this matter right now? Because, yes, there's the best fit practices of, hey, you know, get yourself super financially secure and then do that as quick as you can and then do this and do that. That's sort of like in a perfect world. Maybe you can't reach financial security tomorrow, right, if you're just starting out. Trying to hit financial security when you're in the first year of a business, it's the, it's the wrong goal. It's a step. You're taking a step to that goal. But if you measure your success on financial security by getting your business started, you probably will go through the J-curve. You will burn a little bit of money up front and you'll feel like shit about yourself, which means it's the wrong goal. You're on the right path, but you're measuring your success the wrong way. Maybe that's a better way to put it. I like it. Let's talk about ideas. Sure. You've got an idea here. A great idea can survive despite bad operations. Yeah. So this one I love is, I've mentioned before, I've been involved in a couple of turnarounds. And the thing about a turnaround is it can be caused by many things. Sometimes it's a market issue, like just the market shifted and the business didn't respond in time. Other times it's that internally the business is structured in such a way. And this is something I often teach people is you might have the right idea, but the wrong structure. So you've got the right business model in terms of right customers, right product, you've got product market fit, you've got the right partners, you know, that classic business model canvas, but you're stuffing it up by spending too much on the wrong things and managing your cash flow poorly. And what I've found is that almost the test of a good business is if it gets to a turnaround stage and it's not a market issue, I can look at that and say, right, this is just pure operational issue. Let's get in, let's fix it and do what you're already doing. And this isn't written here, but my often piece of advice is, you know, first, plug the holes in the bucket. Let's just make sure more of the top line falls into your pocket. And we do that by cash flow. We do that by P&L. We do that by operations. And once we've done that, then we look at increasing your transactions, uh, your transaction size, I should say, before we even look at volume. Because I don't want to do anything that shifts the model, which is a huge shift, when maybe it just needs a bit of polishing. And this is what this means, is that a great idea can survive despite bad operations. Nice. 
Can you think of a company that we might know that has got that scenario? <laughs> Can I think of a company that we might know that has the scenario of a good operator? Uh, I'll tell you one, actually. I can't tell you their name, though. That's the, the unfortunate one. It's a private company. That's okay. Is that going to be a good enough example? No, I mean, like a big company. Like, I mean, would you say a company like Tesla might be something like that? Yeah. Where they've got a really good idea. It's like, it's catchy, electric cars. We get it. They've got sure. good tech. Yep. They've had some shitty operational challenges. That's true. Like they put, you know, doors from a Ford on they didn't quite fit or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's a great example. But I think they're now just starting to turn a profit and they are the highest stock value car operation. Well, I think it's a, a value of understanding where in the J curve you are. So I think we touched it again, already spoken about twice. They might get out of it if they're lucky. Exactly, right? Like their idea might be so good, but they're just tweaking the operations and the execution and that's it. It's a great example though, right? Uh, Netflix. So Netflix depreciates their content rapidly, but they've still got a fundamentally pretty solid idea. Like talk to someone who doesn't know Netflix is or doesn't have an account. It's pretty rare, right? Not everyone has one, but it's... Well, everyone at least shares one. <laughs> yeah, right. Everyone's got access to one, which is a bit of a difference, but it, it is huge, right? You can have a great idea with bad operations, or sometimes it's figuring out the operations. And I think this goes back to a belief that you and I, uh, maybe the belief is the long term, but a perspective we share is that perfection is not something you can attain. It's you are just adjusting constantly, just adapting, adapting. Yeah, well, I don't think perfection exists because exactly. the second something is complete or perfect, then another period in time passes and it erodes. Or yeah, if I walk out of this office and leave it, for a couple of years and come back there'll be dust yeah. and uh, rats and whatever and I would have my car will be out of registration <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that's it keep fixed costs low and shift variable to fixed when you have leverage I totally got this. I love it because this one comes up heaps for the types of business that I coach, especially agencies where they're hiring team members and they're reselling the labor of that team member. Yeah. They have to hire a team resource and then it's up to them to manage that resource well to get a return on their investment. Yeah. But where people don't have leverage or they're scaling in a precarious way, I'll often suggest pay a variable cost, You know, like pay per piece of work or pay per customer serviced until you understand the model, till you've run the clocks, so you know how long it takes, what you can expect, you've got enough volume to benchmark, yeah. and then flick the switch because you know what you're dealing with. And that's how, exactly how we ran our SEO business. We hired a lot of people on a fixed wage. The only people on a variable cost were article writers, and it was a per piece scenario. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, you use the word precarious. I think this is the idea of a low data environment versus high data environment. When you've got low data environments, that's either you haven't been collecting the data or it's a startup or it's a young business, you're figuring out the model, which, you know, again, goes back to you can't know everything. Everything's adapting. But it's a smart idea to start a business with variable costs. You know, pass as many costs off as possible so you're not incurring them or risking the capital yourself. I had a chat with a guy out of the US the other day, a multi-million dollar business, and he said, look, Rob, you know, I'm realizing through our discussion that one of the biggest mistakes I made was I've taken too long to switch from variable to fixed because variable made sense. You know, we started this on a shoestring budget and elbow grease. We're at three mil and they got there very quick, but I've let the variable costs get out of control. And that's okay. You can go back. You know, this is the point. It's uh, like pruning, right? You just keep on it pruning or clay or whatever you want to call it. It's a process. But once you have leverage, take the leverage. And what about on the flip side, getting paid? I think this is an interesting one because, again, in the agency world, I've got some clients who are really successful switching from retainer model to a pay-per-lead model. Yep. And in my case, I've got a good portfolio of retainer-style payments, like monthly payments, annual payments. But I also now, as you know, yep. and as you do, I have variable income. I have performance-based income that is yep. paid on a percentage of revenue. 
And I'm okay to take a variable income because I believe I can increase the variable in my favor, but the customer always wins anyway because they're always getting the bigger portion than me. Yeah, yeah. I think it comes to risk, right? So you and I have spoken about this before in terms of cash flow and whatnot, but you know, I want the cash in my pocket, not someone else promising me to give it or giving it to me, right? I don't want the promise, I want the cash. But beyond that is, I think that once you're aware of your skills, right? I'm a big believer that variable deals are better for everyone in that it lowers the risk to the partner. So I've got one deal in particular, very small business. There's sub 1 million. And normally I wouldn't touch it. It's just so far out of my normal area of focus. But when he and I were talking and I looked at these numbers, I was like, you know what? I think this is worth taking a risk on. Let's do a deal. Let, let's cut it. And I use some of the tips that you and I had swapped last time I was in Australia. And what we've seen is that we had to lay some groundwork first. So I'm losing, quote unquote, losing money. You know, if you think about it on an hourly swap, but I am taking the position, the contrarian perspective that in the long run, this will pay me far more money than my fee ever would have. One of the things we did after ops was sorted out was we started executing on ops. We're using that new structure. And one of the, one of the marketing assets we got to get a 20-fold increase in leads. And you know, you do that here and you do a four-fold here and an eight-fold here and the business transforms overnight. But it's about being willing to take that risk on your side. And I really think that's where it comes down to is variable equals risk management, right. and risk capacity. And I love what you said before. It's like whether you know the data or not. Beautiful. Yeah. You got to know it. It's a skin in the game scenario if you're getting paid that way. Yeah. If you're paying out that way, it's a really safe way to scale if you pay out variably in the short term. Like you bring in the marketing and then you know what your costs are going to be as a percentage of your marketing and you can factor that and you can always be winning. Yeah. And then you can take over when you get leveraged. That's such a great point. Haven't really seen it talked about that much. I'm talking about it all the time behind the scenes, yeah. but I totally get the beauty of that statement. It, it's killer. I'll make one last note on it, which is interesting. We talk about agents is there's a media buyer who for the right people I will recommend in a heartbeat and he is great in terms of he will work with you if you have a, a proven offer right one that you've got some data on if you're a mass market offer he'll look at it and if he can look at it he'll just say look I don't take a percentage of spend I hate that model as a side note that doesn't work for me coming from the media background it's so easy to bastardize he doesn't take a retainer typically what he does is he takes a, a one month fee which is then credited and he takes uh, 15% or something of sales yep. that come from the campaigns that he scales and grows. And every business I know that's worked for him works with him for multiple years. They love the work he does. And they recognize that giving you know, the equivalent of 30% of the standard online or less uh, affiliate commission per sale, the time, energy, effort, skills, IP, proprietary knowledge that he has that he contributes dramatically improves their business. And they pay him once. For each customer and then they get to monetize them on the back end everyone wins in that deal and i think that's so important yeah several of my clients just sell their services on a per lead or per sale basis yeah no retainer yep. no upfront fee it's just they're so good they can be paid on success and that's how i coach now as well yeah this model only works if you're good yeah that's something very important to mention so that will exclude the seventeen thousand facebook agencies that popped up yeah. in the last six months you know oh <laughs> like, uh, it's a good test though it's a really good test a friend of mine was talking with he's got a multi-million dollar business in health and fitness was talking with an agency and they were like oh you know we want that's you know, a hefty five figure a month fee and he just turns to them and said listen guys like you're asking me to take on a lot of risk you seem very confident if you're this confident would you do a percentage deal you'll earn more in a percent and they were like yeah okay and for them, it was that, you know, it's so rare that people want to do the percent deals because there's all this fear and concern about the rules. But he was so willing to give them a cut that they were like, yeah, okay, done. 
That's how confident they were. And it's a great litmus test. I found the more risk-averse customers prefer a revenue share deal Hmm. than a retainer deal because the risk is on me and not them. Yeah. So it can work well. Absolutely. So next one. Be ruthless in your assessment of your operating environment. I love how you ask the next one and I'm telling you, but it's your thing. (laughs) (laughs) Let's keep this machine moving. So what does that mean? Be ruthless in your assessment of your operating environment. Yeah, sure. So I had a conversation with a client of mine earlier and this guy has uh, exploded, right? He's turned a multi-million dollar business in the short time we've been working together. He came to me as a service provider and he's now realized that he can scale up on top of his services, a publishing arm. And we were talking about the state of the economy and what's going to happen, what is likely to happen, what's going to happen to his customer base. Now, if you're someone who's been watching the global economy as a whole, so watching transaction, uh, sorry, um, currency rates, watching gold, watching Bitcoin, whatever it is, you've got to understand that these are representations for real people of their livelihood. Now, in the operating environment as a whole, and this is not political, this is more just the realities of the stock market in the US went up and then had a giant dip and then has just been accelerating again. And if you start to compare the US dollar value of the NASDAQ index, for example, against the value of gold, you get a very different picture. You get a very different picture of what's been happening. But you have to understand then that there are people who are going to see this as well. And this is the economy you're operating in. Now, if it's a bull market and people are excited, then sell to the bulls, sell to the growth. If it's a bear market, if people are scared, people are worried, sell to security. And as I'm fond of saying to another one of my clients is the market doesn't care what you want. It really does not care about you. It's saying, I want X. And if you put your head in the sand and you say, oh, well, you know, Henry Ford said, if I asked my customers what they want, I would have made a faster horse. They love to quote that, but it's a poor representation of what's happening. And it's not even been factually backed up. There you go. There's no evidence of that quote. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So my belief really comes from you have to be very clear on what is happening. And that can be the introductions of new competitors into your operating environment. It can be the introduction of new features, uh, you know, the introduction of this GPT-3 AI. Well, it's still got a lot of flaws. If you're not watching what's happening on a global scale that could impact your ability to provide value, because that's really what we're talking about here at the end of the day is value adding, well, you're doing yourself a disservice and you have to be ruthless because you know, this is something I do with like, my private clients, the one-on-one guys who pay me to sit down and go through this process with them is we really analyze what's happening. What are the trends? What are the waves? Because that's what you need to be aware of. What's going to crash? What's going to pick up? And where are you positioned? And if you can't do that, you run the risk of being smashed out. Yeah. So to me, it's that you, you've got to be uh, more focused on what's happening versus what you want to be happening. We've seen this happen with the change in the market. Almost all of my top-end clients are having the best months of their life ever. Yeah. And it's because we're constantly looking for threats and things that could take them out and protecting against it, protecting against single source dependency in their team, the market, their product line. I've got one who's absolutely crushing it right now. And our constant mantra has been just maintain your vice grip on the market. Don't let anyone rise up Mm -hmm. and be on the same platform as you. Because right now, he has got some of the biggest companies in the world begging him to provide more services. And he's he's the only supplier of any merit in the market yeah. and people do pop up from time to time but we constantly whack a mole <laughs> yep. and uh, stay strong and we're just getting really strong but when I read this phrase about being ruthless in your assessment of your operating environment I was particularly thinking that's like not deluding yourself or you know putting on some sort of halo thinking that you're special and, yeah. and that you're going to not have to deal with things that are going to affect other people like yep. basically it's that little bit of uh, you should build in a little bit of paranoia and look for the trouble before it finds you. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Do you know the PESTLE framework? I read it in your thing somewhere, but I don't 
know what it is. So the PESTLE framework is a, an old one, fairly well established, I should say, for understanding how or slicing the, the world around you to look for threats, right? So it's like, all right, what's happening, for example, on a political basis, right? Is there going to be a risk to me in, say, an election? Because that can change policy, that can change operating environments. We've got the economic side of things. What's happening there? The social order, right? The US in particular is seeing massive forms of social upheaval. What's happening in tech? You know, GPT-3, I mentioned that before environmental. Now that can be both actual physical environmental, climate change, global warming type stuff, or it can be my immediate environment. People could be working from home. Working from home. People can't go out. Yes. And then the legal environment. What kind of policies are coming in as well as persuasion? So just having that perspective, you're not seeking to, I think, get ahead of yourself. Now, I don't know about you, but I've, I've made the mistake, and I'm sure most people listening to this can recognize they've done it too, I've made mistakes where I thought I was unique and I was special. There was something wonderful about me. I'd be untouched. And then the universe hears you say that and says, oh, really? I'm going to teach you a quick little lesson, just a quick little nudge. And, you know, you fall over, you scrape your knees, scrape your elbows, scrape your hands and go, ooh, okay, I am as exposed as everyone else if I put my head in the sand or if I pretend that I'm wonderful. It is, I believe, better to have a smaller perspective of yourself or in terms of your capability, not your capabilities, sorry, your strength, your fortitude, and be a little more sensitive on risk, like you said, be paranoid, than it is to go the other way around. I've seen a lot of people get knocked off their perch. Yeah. And it started with my family <laughs> yeah. when I was a kid. So I've come from an environment of you know having to go and get a job in a recession yeah. and then seeing the global financial crisis. And I've had to navigate all around this as a young adult through to a family man to now as an entrepreneur, I want to protect and save the things I've built up. I don't want it all to be unwound. So I'm always keeping an eye out and yeah. protecting. We're talking about off air actually before we're recording, you know, what you and I are doing to make sure that we're untouchable when it comes to whatever could happen in the future. So it's a trait I see in smart people is sticking a few chestnuts away in case there's another winter. So seek strong market forces before strong execution. Yeah, I love this one because it took me a long time to really comprehend or like experience for myself. It really comes down to supply and demand. If you are, because uh, it's always an equation, right? How high supply, how high is demand? If you're on the wrong side of that equation, it doesn't matter how great you are at execution, you're in for a real tough battle. So this is like Blockbuster versus Netflix. Exactly, right? You know, so Blockbuster, if you're a Blockbuster, you better be looking at what's happening in demand. Oh, gosh. Yeah, right? Yeah. Bezos was the one who said, what doesn't change? Faster and cheaper. Yeah, I like that. I really like that sentiment. It's because yeah. people always ask him, you know, what do you think will change in the future? And he's like, I look for what won't change. People want yeah. the best products, the best supply, the best prices, the fastest delivery. That's why he's looking at zone drone deliveries and all that sort of stuff and you know automatic checkouts where the thing knows what you'd take off the shelf and put in your cart when you're in a physical store and those sort of things make sense absolutely did we talk about the doug casey deal with the dairy farm last call i don't recall uh remind me yeah it's a weird enough story yeah it's a weird enough story that i figured it would trigger your memory but this is a great example of it is uh, in latin america there was a period where soybeans and corn i think it was were being subsidized and this uh, international investor guy, Doug Casey, talks about in an interview that he'd purchased a dairy farm but with no cattle, right? And there was these shifts in policies, and he found out that the farm down the road had 130 cattle on its balance sheet, which were essentially a rounding error in comparison to their size. And the owner of the farm had turned to the general manager and said, hey, like, just get rid of the cows, because essentially every square meter we've got a cow on is a square meter we can't grow soy or corn on. And on top of that, the cows eat the soy and the corn. So they're destroying value. So let's get rid of them. So there was a market demand to offload them, or there was a supply. And Doug talks about doing this deal with them where he agreed to take it off their hands in return for a year of milk. 
That was it. That's the whole structure of the deal. And what he was looking at was he talks about the belief that at the time, this is 10 years ago, that there was the likelihood of a beef shortage in Latin America and Argentina because of different policies and weather. So he was seeking to get ahead of that market force and then ride it so that when it came to its peak, he could sell the cows. Now, I admit, I don't know what happened, what his exit off that was. But again, he's sniffing for the strong market position. Where's the demand going to be? Where is the demand right now? And I think this is why those Facebook agencies we spoke about before were so popular was at a time there was a low supply in Facebook ad knowledge and high demand for someone who knew how to make us money on Facebook because everyone's making money on Facebook but me. What's the demand? And then a couple of people sold courses on how to sell Facebook ads but never really taught you how to actually deliver Facebook ads in an economically viable way. Because for most people, like it's better to teach a local chiropractor how to run his own Facebook ads in 15 minutes a day or to hire his front desk member to do it than it is to try and build an agency around it. That's tough. That's really tough. But now all of a sudden we have an oversupply and nowhere near as much demand as the chiros realize this themselves. So I think that's the same thing is you know, seeking strong market forces. And there's one sort of addition to this is uh, one of the guys I know who's going through a program by Roland Fraser at the moment was saying that Roland was discussing that a major contribution for them was seeking forces, seeking trends, going where there's demand. Find the wave of demand, ride the wave of demand. Well, that's the very fact that Roland's selling a course about buying businesses at this time is a classic example of that. So, you know, James, do you want to read this one out? Because you're the pacemaker of the reading. Yeah, results come from behavior and behavior comes from culture and expectations. When you have someone who works for you, if you pitch them on, oh, you're going to have so much fun. This is such an exciting, interesting job. You're going to learn so much. But all they're doing is manually inputting spreadsheet data. They're not going to like you. If you tell people you've got a wonderful workplace and then you allow an environment to be cultivated where politics is okay and backstabbing is okay and lying is okay, it affects how people trust each other. But it depends if it has a football table or not. Well, the football table and the lolly wall are critical. You get those things, you're now starting to talk. You know, starting to bias them a bit, <laughs> blind them with all the goodies. All the dopamine. But it, it is critical, right? Because culture is how we treat each other. It's trust. It is. And look, none of us is perfect. I think this is really key is none of us are perfect. I've stuffed up plenty of times in my life and I've always sought to make it right. Uh, sometimes I haven't been able to because people have been you know, upset rightly or wrongly with me and that's their decision to not seek collaboration or repairing a relationship with me. And other times, people have done things to me where I've said, mm, I don't trust you anymore and I don't seek to repair my relationship with you. That's a you know, good, healthy boundary. But beyond that, understanding that culture is how we treat each other and how we agree to treat each other, it determines everything that follows. So if you uh, create a culture where we, I think Dalio talks about you inviting dissent, inviting dissent. You know, we need to have honest, open, hard, transparent conversations where we disagree with each other, but we do it because the greater culture is we're all after the same thing. That's how we treat each other. We do it respectfully. Yeah. I think, look, behavior, this one fascinates me because I've had animals, I've got kids, I've got a team, I've got customers, and I'm just getting so many lessons in human behavior. You can definitely change the outcomes and the results based on the behavior and the expectations. A client of mine sent me uh, an email today, and he said that someone just come on board with him as a client because he was on my podcast, and this guy's been following me for about 10 years and met me in an event a long, long time ago and is listening to the podcast. And I think that's such a long time. And one thing I just want to make a point about here is when you say to someone, oh, look, you know, I think you're sending quite a lot of emails, they'll usually say, look, it works. Yeah. You know, I do it because it works. But does it work? That's the thing. 
How much revenue is being missed because you've switched that person off and they're never going to switch it back on? That's my concern. You're not really able to track that cohort. The people who would have bought in three years, five years or 10 years when they grow up and get to be a bigger fish that won't buy because you've switched them off. And I think now more than ever, because we seem to be in a cancel culture, Mm -hmm. that it's probably much easier to step on a landmine than it's ever been in history. And even, you know, quite unfairly in some cases, I've seen some unbelievable examples of it, but I think it's a good time to be respectful of your audience and to put their thoughts and empathy right there in the forefront of your actions and yeah. your behaviours. And then I think you'll get really good long-term results. And I've definitely built my brand around the long haul. Yeah. I'm not after a quick win. I never push people yep. past their limit. And I'll often tell people to wait or don't go ahead. And maybe I don't bank as many millions, but I do plan to be around for quite a while. Yeah, there's two thoughts that come to mind. The first is uh, years ago, as a teenager, someone said to me, oh, you know, I'd, I'd rather burn out than fade away. And that sounded so cool, but it's dumb. Like, I, I don't want to burn out, actually. I want to stay around like you for a long time. I like the candle that burns twice as bright, burns half as long. Yeah, it is. The other thing is, it's almost that Japanese proverb, right? The nail that sticks up gets the hammer. I've really enjoyed cultivating a really low profile over the past decade. And some people will say to me, like, you know, why don't you go the guru route? Why don't you do more? Why don't you have a podcast? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And look, you know, it didn't suit where I was and it gave me a lot of time to work on my craft and be quiet. You know, I have a small internet presence. Well, you, you used to up until now. Oh, uh, yeah, right. Thanks, James. Here's the thing. You go and pop up a little nugget on social media and next thing you know, you're getting a little, uh, you know, in front of a new audience. And yeah. that's the way these things work. It's, it's amazing how things happen. Yep. Here's a sequence of events that happened. Someone mentioned on Facebook about memberships yep. because a guy asked, you know, who knows about memberships? Someone mentioned my name. They asked me if I'd come on their podcast and talk about it. I did. That was Anik Singhal. Mm-hmm. And one of the people listening to that was Mike Dillard. He got in touch with me, yeah. wanted to chat to me, and then he invited me to go on his podcast. And from those two podcasts alone, I've got a bunch of paying customers at yeah. high prices who have heard me and, and now want to do business. That's just from putting in the work over the time and having other people endorse. So yeah. that's what I would say is a strong market force. And now it's time for the strong execution. That's why I'm dropping a profitable membership course out in the marketplace and a book because it's clearly validated that people are interested in that and that there's already a groundswell that will support it. Yeah. So I like the, you know, the results come from the behavior, that long-term behavior. And and a lot of people, when they come online, expect an instant win. And partly it's the copywriters and the marketers who are, you know, conveying this message that it happens very easily, very quickly, with almost no effort. And I'm here to say it just didn't work that way for me. It can certainly make it easier by consuming good information like this. I learned something great today, which was that fantastic framework around threats. So we're always learning. I love love this podcast for how much of an education I've had. I've listened to every episode of my podcast. (laughs) It's good. As I've recorded them, but never afterwards. Never after. No, it's good. I think you tapped on something which actually isn't in this document. It deserves a real highlight point, which is 
what if you could only run your business on referrals, right? What if you could only run your business on referrals? You know, you can't do outreach, uh, you can't do Google organic, you can't do paid traffic, you can only do referrals. So we're talking podcasts, joint ventures, and it's a tough nut to swallow, but I, I think it's a really good guideline of how would you act. I'd get people results. Yeah. Like first and foremost, I'd have an incredible product. Yep. I think having amazing product takes care of almost everything. I mean, my wife's business is pretty much that. Yep. It's a recruitment business. They find VAs in the Philippines Perfect. for my customers. It's called visionfind.com. Here I am referring it. Yeah. And it's 100% referral based. They don't do any ads. They didn't even have a website yep. in the beginning. They sit on the back end. It's just referrals. Some people have seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve people from the same company hiring ongoing because they just kick ass. So yeah. have a great product is just like step number one for getting repeat and referral business. And yeah. when I was in the automotive trade, which is a notoriously crappy service industry, oh, horrible. Like every single person you'll ever meet who's bought a car will give you a horror story. I had fifty percent of my business was repeat and referral within two years. Killer. And uh, it was just from actually like caring about people oh. can you imagine how how like there's a story there on this it's so contrarian but so obvious i don't remember who it was and oh i wish i could pin the name but you gave someone a piece of advice it might have been kyle gray that you should follow up with people with a handwritten thank you note yes it was something as simple as that yeah, i yeah. think it was kyle gray but it is i send gifts to my clients right and sometimes it's a gift for their kids sometimes it's a gift for them personally I try to, because they're around the world, I try to make it what I can in their local market so I ensure they get it. But those little tokens of appreciation, you know, if anyone here follows Craig Ballantyne, I sent him a pack of poker chips a couple of years back. And on them, they say, take all your chips and bet them on yourself. And it came off the back of going through a real hard period in my life in 2018 or personal life. And Craig gave me this advice. He said, you know, because he was one of the few people I shared with that shared this about or shared the event, what was happening with. And he just said, look, you know, this is the period of time where you take all your chips and bet them on yourself. And that was a small gesture from him. It was a two-line email, one-line email. That was it. It was just a one-line email. But it had this huge impact on him. And then I've sent him these poker chips. And now he uses them to get clients. And it's this wonderful thing. Uh, it's the same with my therapist. Is I worked with this great therapist. You know, I think everyone, you know, we talked about mindset last episode. But I think everyone who's struggling with something, you need someone to help you with that mental side of things. I work with a trained therapist. He's unreal. I have sent him so many referrals because he got great results for me. He was a wonderful supporter. And most importantly is I trust him because I had a great product to work with other people. And now I also know he's not pushy. He made this comment to me that it's a bit like standing under a palm tree in a rainstorm. At first, the drops are very slow. Nothing really comes through. But if you just keep delivering a great product time after time, you will soon be soaking wet and almost drowning because it will just break through. And I reckon that's such wonderful advice. So I know we've gone a little off script with that, but I think it's killer. Yeah, well, I didn't ever expect we were going to stick fully to the script. (laughs) Like, I don't know if it's being selfish, but I'm really enjoying this type of podcast. And I've been promising my audience that I don't want to do your standard bullshit interview with someone who just published something and they want to get a whole bunch of traffic i want to do better stuff like i'm literally talking about having good product i want my podcast to be better yeah i've been doing it for 10 years and i know i can do way better i've been doing an okay job but everything up until now i feel has been an apprenticeship (laughs) and i'm ready to start letting the handbrake off and you know i'm i'm enjoying this style where we can talk about things that have a 
you know, we have a big emotional connection to this. And I know this is coming up, actually. But before we get to that part, let's talk about using management rhythms in your business. You know what would be fun? It'd be fun if I tell you what I got from it and then you tell me what it actually means. Love it. Yeah, go for it. From this one, I remember reading a book called Jack from uh, the guy that ran GE. And he talked about beating the drum, like on a constant basis, like the tribal council, like you've just got to constantly beat the drum within your business. And, uh, you know, you'd have council get togethers or whatever. In our business, we have a weekly meeting and I'm always banging the drum and just keeping the rhythm of what we're doing. So that's what I thought it might have meant, but you could tell me if it's different. Yeah, you're pretty close with it. So I was introduced initially the, you know, the idea of one-on-ones and all this stuff through corporate culture. But to be honest, most of them suck. Like they really suck. Hey, let's just sit down for 30 minutes and waffle and not really get anything. And a guy who we mentioned in the last episode, Matt Smith, he was the first one to give me a real in-depth understanding of management rhythms. And over my eyes to it, we actually put together, there's a program on Early to Rise University called the Management Rhythms Blueprint. And it's taking Matt's knowledge and experience and condensing it down into these scheduled meetings, essentially, for accountability, responsibility. And then obviously, these people have the authority to affect change. And for us, it's you know, five or six scheduled meetings across a 90-day period. Some are weekly, some are daily, some are quarterly, some are monthly. But then using those to, to drive performance, to keep a culture of success. Now, I even use these meetings with my assistant because she shows up every Monday. We have a 30-minute period, checking with how she's doing, what's going on, how'd you go on the two goals we set last week, blah, 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 blah. But it just keeps this rhythm of let's move forward. And while a lot of people think that it's about getting performance out of their employees, the secondary benefit uh, isn't just performance. It's showing your employees that you care because you show up and you create an actual space for them. It's sacred. They can sit and talk with you and share what's going on so that you know, if someone's got some problems at home or if someone's struggling with their parents or if they've just got some stuff going on, you don't always want them to have a problem, but you don't want to be taken by surprise. So that's the idea of management rhythm really is having these regularly scheduled updates, accountability points and message transference that happen and drive your business and create a like cyclical, like a weather pattern. We've got the four seasons, we've got the four meetings. Nice one. We come through them every week. I mean, we've got a remote team. We use a lot of grapevine. We know if someone's got a family member sick or they've got something happening yeah. like instantly, and we can yeah. have that combo. And also, in my case, a little bit unique because I usually visit the Philippines three or four times a year. Yeah. So I have them over to my house. I cook them dinner. Yeah. We talk. We go surfing together. Like, we do have a really close bond and relationship yeah. compared to a lot of team cultures. I'd put my team up against any other team in terms of how we get on they're so good that's awesome and uh i don't know if it's mentioned anywhere else but loose tight management no we haven't got this in the doc why don't you draw on it so loose tight is um definitely rhythmic it's like loose is like letting them free range a bit go out there and just like all the shackles off just roaming around leaning into their own natural strengths or tendencies or things that are less productive whatever but just to see where, where they go and what they do and then tight is to bring them in it's like you know you gather them all up bring them in get tight going you know have a good look through their stuff get up close and personal so again like when i used to visit the philippines and bring the team in it's like we gather them up i go okay let's go through a podcast edit can you show me what you're doing let's and we go through on the laptop and we have and what happens then and where we go and we say okay now this step here i think uh, is there any reason we couldn't just eliminate that one maybe we don't need that anymore we used to need it for this but now that thing's no longer functional or i've identified that's not an important part of the business anymore let's just stop doing that yeah so that's like loose tight let them go and then bring them back in let them go bring them back in yeah i love it i think it's as well that 
because, and this goes to culture again, because your team knows you care about them, you're not there to punish them or tell them they're doing a bad job. You're not the boss getting them in trouble. You're like, how do I make it easier for you to get results and contribute and add your value? How do I make uh, it possible for you to learn and grow? So when I come over you and say, oh, maybe we get rid of that, I'm doing it to clear the path for you, oh. to make sure you're up to date, because I care. Like what I say to my team often is, I want you to have a great life. Yeah. Like, you imagine they're editing my podcasts and videos. I'm talking about surfing and having a good life and yep. the importance of sleep and not being in a draconian, Orwellian type work environment. I want them to have a good life. Yep. I want them to pick up their kids from school. I want them to go to the movies with their partner on a weekday. And all these things that I do, I want them to enjoy life. Yeah. And... I think that really leans into the next point, which is invest in your people emotionally. Because mm. I can't remember who said this recently, but someone told me that they just realized that their team members, they're not cogs in a machine. Yeah. They're actually humans. I'm like, wow, that just blew my mind. Yeah. And often when I'm coaching people, I ask them about their team and they usually know the team's names. They rarely know what part of the country they're in. They have no idea what language they speak. They know nothing about the culture. Yeah. And some of them haven't even spoken to them for either forever or for years, which again, it's that's not very emotionally uh, tuned in. No. And I think it's Part of it's the responsibility of the you know, roaring 80s mentality and, hey, let's just, you know, you've got to get in there, you've got to crush, bang, bang, bang. And maybe that was the case, but again, going back to being ruthless in your assessment of your operating environment, we have a lot of incredible technology now. I don't know if you're still using Entreport. I still use Entreport, though. I love Entreport. I am, yeah. It's Ripper. And the reason I love it, for every bit, like I get clients onto it if they're using some weird stack, because what it does is it frees up time. The same activity occurs with less effort. And that free time, because you're leveraging it, either A, you were working too much, now you can work less, you know, work less, make more, as, a, as the title of a great book is, or you can use that time to invest in new projects. But it's that freedom to leverage these tools, technologies, and opportunities. And I think when you talk about investing in your people emotionally, you really, and look, don't get me wrong, I always catch this stuff because I'm aware that when I listened to podcasts or watched interviews or read books before, I felt like a bit of a failure being like, oh my God, I've never thought of this. Like, it's a learned skill. It's a learned paradigm that you get better at, you mature at. I've made plenty of mistakes. I remember back years ago having a conflict with a girl who was on my team and making her cry. And that wasn't great. I was much, much, much younger. I'd come from this hard charging, push, push, push kind of environment. And all of a sudden I wasn't in that anymore. And I brought the wrong thing. I didn't adapt. I really stuffed up. And I think that's part of investing in your people emotionally is A, being able to say you're stuffed up, being vulnerable. B, taking an interest in them. What are they trying to achieve in life? What do they care about? Really risking your own emotional investment because, yeah, you'll be sad if an employee leaves you. But as they talk about in the book, uh, Super Bosses, why is it that certain bosses have this incredible effect where they bring up an almost an entire wave of individuals, an entire class, cohort in an industry? It's because they cared. They invested, they developed and invested. Like they, I'm not sure how much stronger I can make the point, but people care about people who care about them. It's a natural law of reciprocity. James, I care about you, so you probably care about me. Maybe you don't, but you're more likely to than if I don't care about you at all. And if you take that with you, you look back over your own life in your personal relationships, your professional relationships, it's the people who care most about you, the people who show up on a regular basis that you say, okay, I'll go to the wall for that guy. I'll go a little further. I'll make my life a little uncomfortable to take care of this guy because he does the same for me. And I think that's so important. Yeah, I think it's really important what you said about having to adapt. I know 
I came from a tough industry. Yeah. I came from that a male-dominated, hardcore, established, competitive industry. And most definitely since I left that industry, I had to peel back a few layers of armor. Yeah. Like, if I'm not careful... I could just demolish someone yeah. and it would be a reflex reaction. And uh, yeah. you know, a lot of people who worked in my old industry have this sort of post-traumatic stress disorder or whatever it's called because it's tough. There's a lot of bastardry, sort of hardcore, threatening, violent. I mean, one of my bosses pulled a knife on me, <laughs> <laughs> spat on me, called me names. Like, yeah. it would be uh, totally... Like, if he did it now in the era of social media and I filmed it, it would be unbelievable. That's an interesting one. But, you know, like, I I locked it away for a while, but I had to just peel those onion layers off and soften up a bit. I'm a much better version of myself now, but I've had to get there over time. How I feel about my team, it really is a strong, deep emotion to the point, like, I have a very high empathy. And I feel like our business is definitely... It's an organization. It's a collaboration of individuals coming together and we're definitely more powerful. Like this podcast and all the things we publish in that, like people, they say we're prolific and we're busy and whatever. It's just the team. The team are just like, they just get the stuff out there. They do the job. They're incredible. I've got to say, you say when you think about your team, you think of them. I think, for example, my assistant, right? She's so integral to my life. And the impact that she has on my life and then the clients who she interacts with is, is, ah, I could never be that great. I just accept that's a giant flaw of mine. She feels it so perfectly. It's complimentary. And at the same time, you know, I want every success for her. You know, when I work with partners on different deals, I want every success for them. Like I care about them. And similar to you, I've had to go through that process of stripping back armor, getting rid of those knee jerk reactions, posturing, had to get in the bin. So you can turn around and say someone I care, but Caring isn't weak. Caring is actually a very strong activity because you're saying, I'm willing to be vulnerable. I'm willing to share, to be shared with. Uh, and I am ironically strong enough to have that quote unquote weakness. I can share. Um, that took me a long time to learn that lesson as well. The more vulnerable I became publicly, the more my audience just embrace it too. I've noticed that it's not a bad trait. Yeah. And in fact, I think some people maybe overshare. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Instagram. If you've got an essay beneath your Instagram post, I do not want to hear about what's happening. Go get a therapist. Yeah, some people do overshare on, on the socials. I've talked about that a few times, and I think maybe they just go one step too far. Sure. But I'll tell you what, like we're about halfway through this document, and I, I want to know if, if I can invite you back to continue this uh, ongoing saga is this something you're up for absolutely i feel like we owe it now as well like we've started this we've got to finish this i'm a completionist at times i don't want to um undervalue the rest of the things we're going to be talking about sales techniques we're going to talk about automation we're going to be talking about cash flow like there's so much good stuff i literally can't believe that we've gotten a couple of hours already out of just half this one paragraph so it's incredible so thank you so much this is part two Ah, absolutely welcome mate absolutely welcome this is episode 762 this is part two of a multi-part series as it turns out yeah i'm speaking with rob hanley rob's going to drop his details here so you can follow him up if you're wondering who this mystery man is where do we find out about rob hanley the easiest way to find me is on instagram it's at then r-o-b-h-a-n-l-y so there's no e everyone always thinks it's me it's just r-o-b-h-a-n-l-y or if you want a very basic bio, 
It's R-O-B-H-A-N-L-Y.com. I like to keep it very simple. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate this. We've put a full transcription up at superfastbusiness.com. Search for episode 762. If you like this show, if you're enjoying this type of content, could you do me a favor? Just hit reply to the email we send out when we let you know there's an episode and just let me know. Are you enjoying this? And by the way, if you hate it, then tell me that too. I won't do any more of these. I'll just let Rob know. It deals off. All over. And uh, we'll get it back onto those interviews or, or something else. No, I'm just kidding. It was worth doing for me. I, I learned something really valuable today, and that's an extra little acronym to put in my threats file. So I was joking with Rob before this, like when I asked him where the file is, what was it called? And he said it was called screenshot, whatever. And I said, okay, yep. <laughs> and I put James Shramko's cheat sheet, not for sharing. And uh, we had a little laugh about this, but I think it's just gold. You know, hope you think it is too. And we'll catch up with you on the next episode where we're going through this incredible business cheat sheet, uh, this amazing discovery that just floated up in front of my Instagram story feed one day. And I immediately recognized this has to be discussed. So thank you. Speak soon. Thanks for having Cheers. Discover how to build your business super fast. Check out superfastbusiness.com.